1048 and in the large print 1512. Matthew chapter 8. And tonight we're going to look at verses 18 to 22. Well, having had a recent experience of purchasing a kitchen, uh, I've come to realize that sometimes uh, when you're buying something uh, or choosing something, you only know the cost of something later. When you're picking a kitchen, uh, the people that are selling you the kitchen uh, get you to pick taps, you have to pick handles, you have to pick colors, uh, doors, types of doors, things I'd never even thought of, most of the things I didn't really care about. And they put your kitchen together, and they show you the kitchen on a wonderful uh, 3D model after measuring up the, the space. And they make you look at your kitchen and fall in love with your kitchen, and then about a week later, they send you the price. And you get the price of your kitchen, and then you ring them up and you say, you know what, those handles, they don't look quite so nice. I don't really need that tap. Is there a cheaper one that you could have? How much are the doors the next model down? And you try and bring the price down because you didn't realize that the kitchen was going to cost that much. Similar things can happen with holidays. You look at the brochure, you see a wonderful package, you put it all together, and then it's only after you fall in love with your dream holiday that you get the price. And all of a sudden, the package comes down. Or you get the adverts on the radio... That, uh, that, that you understand what they say, and then at the end, 100 miles an hour, they say, subject to status, terms and conditions apply. And I always feel like when they say that, there's something that they're hiding. What are those terms and conditions? What is the status that I'm supposed to be subject to? Well, Matthew chapter 8 is an advertisement for God's kingdom. We've seen, as we've looked at this chapter so far... The healings and the cleansings that heaven has broken into earth. And last week as we looked at the the healing of Jesus, we saw that it looks amazing. It looks wonderful and we've seen that for us, when we're in heaven, that is what all of us will receive all the time. We'll be in perfect health for all eternity when we're with Jesus. It's going to be wonderful. It's a wonderful advert for those with faith in Jesus or sickness and sadness are going to be gone because Jesus has paid the price for sin. And when you say that, and it is wonderful, and it sounds great, and you think, well, great, being a Christian, that's that's, that's got to be wonderful. It's got to be easy, right? All I've got to do is ask for forgiveness of my sin and all is good. Well, here we come to a great gospel paradox. And the paradox is this, that the gospel is free. The gospel is free. We are saved from our sins by the grace of God. Jesus has died for our sins. He has paid the price with his precious blood. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. 
we have to totally have faith in the death of Jesus and his resurrection to pay the price for our sin. I, I cannot do anything to save myself. But yet, here in the passage we're going to see tonight, Jesus asks for everything. The gospel is free, but as we enter God's kingdom, the king of the kingdom asks us for everything. And the demands that Jesus makes are radical demands. But unlike the false advertisements of the world, with all their hidden costs, Jesus clearly tells us what life in his kingdom is like before we enter it. We've seen that in in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, this is life in my kingdom. And Jesus demands of us wholehearted loyalty. He doesn't just ask for a part of anything of us. Jesus Christ demands everything, all that we have. And the cost of following Jesus in this passage is shown through two different people as they respond to him. In fact, the decision um, is, is seen as, as a choice to get on a boat in verse 18. If you look at the verse, it says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. So Jesus is surrounded by the crowds because of the healing. Okay, the, He's healing multitudes, casting out demons, and crowds are all around him. They're pressing on him. And he, he, he feels the need to depart from the crowds for a time. And so he orders his disciples to cross to the other side of the lake. So obviously, to get to the other side of the lake, we'll see uh, that there is a boat that they must go on. Jesus is leaving. And there is space to go to the other side of the lake on this, this boat... And it's a, the, literally, in the historical, there's a historical event going on here. Jesus is getting on a boat and the disciples are called to go with him to the other side. But Matthew also uses this to show us that Jesus is calling us from the crowd to follow him. And we are invited to embark on the boat. And in doing so, we see the response of two individuals... In verses 18 to 22. So let's read those verses. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is God's word. As the boat is about to leave, we see two responses to the opportunity to embark. And the first man is too quick to promise. It says a teacher of the law came to him. 
A teacher of the law, in some translations is, is described as a scribe, they were well respected, they were usually well, well thought of by the community, they would have had what we would call, I suppose, a middle class uh, uh, role, they would have been comfortable in their lifestyle, and usually the teachers of the law were opposed to Jesus. As you read through the Gospels, you'll often see the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as a group opposing Jesus. But here we see a teacher of the law saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now this would be a great convert, wouldn't it? A great convert because it would be from his enemies. The people that are always opposing him, here we see one who wants to follow him. Imagine, if he could be a disciple... Well, that would be brilliant. He could go and explain to the other teachers of the law. And he's got amazing commitment. Look again at what he says. I will follow you wherever you go. Now, literally, that means I'll go to the other side of the lake with you, Jesus. And that's quite a commitment because the other side of the lake, as we'll see uh, in the passage uh, next time or maybe the time after that, but it was a predominantly Gentile land. It was a big deal for a Jewish teacher of the law to go to the foreign parts. And so he gives Jesus this blank check with his life. I will follow you wherever you go. I'll go with you to the foreign lands. Wherever this boat is going, I'm on it. I'll go with you. I'll follow you. Follow is a a discipleship word. I will follow you. Jesus, I will be your disciple. Whatever you Wherever you want me to go, Jesus, I will go. And it's a a great promise, isn't it? Surely Jesus wants to hear this. And surely we look for this response, don't we? If we're sharing uh, our faith with our family or our friends or our neighbours or work colleagues, and they say to you, I'll follow Jesus wherever he wants me to go. I'll do anything that Jesus wants me. We, We might think, wow... This is an amazing response. This is wonderful. Which is why verse 20 seems so strange. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Well, uh, foxes, uh, they, they live in dens and the nest birds live in nests. It means the the basic comfort of life. These creatures, the foxes and the birds, have the basics. They have what they need. They have a home. But Jesus doesn't even have this. It's the first use in Matthew's Gospel of this phrase, Son of Man, this name for Jesus. And understanding this name helps us to understand what Jesus is saying to this teacher of the law. The name Son of Man, in one sense, helps us to understand Jesus is a man. It talks of his humanity. Jesus Christ is born to a human being, a woman. Crucially, he doesn't have a father. He's the Son of God. So Son of Man helps us to think of Jesus in his human frame. As a human, Jesus Christ, unlike the foxes and the birds, has nowhere to lay his head. But there's another sense 
of what this name, Son of Man, means. Because it's an important name from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel has a vision of the end of time, where the kingdoms of this world are destroyed and God's kingdom will be all that remains. And this is what Daniel writes in his vision at the end of Daniel, or in the middle of Daniel chapter 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Yes, in one sense we see the humanity of Jesus, but in another sense, this vision of this Son of Man is what is in mind. This this glorious Son of Man, this one who comes from heaven, who has all glory and authority and power, is the Son of Man. And that's the title Jesus claims when he's calling himself Son of Man. So Jesus Christ comes from heaven where he is in glory. And he comes from there to earth where he doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Jesus is the God who made the foxes and who made the birds. He spoke them into existence He gives them uh, dens and nests, and yet the God who made these things, when he comes from heaven, doesn't even have a place to lay his own head. He is less even than the creatures that he has made. The point being made here to the teacher of the law is this. If you are going to follow me, you are going to have to follow me In my humiliation, like I came from heaven to earth. This verse doesn't mean that followers of Christ must not own anything. We mustn't own a home. Some early Christians owned homes. We saw one of them last week. Peter, his mother-in-law, stayed in his house. In the early church... In Acts, they met in homes. Some of those homes had to have been owned by Christians. Jesus was homeless, yes, but not penniless. He, he held uh, temporary things lightly. But whilst it doesn't mean that we cannot own anything as disciples, it does mean that we don't really own anything as Christians because God asks for it all. That we use all that we have for his glory and his purposes. Jesus demands all that we have and we have to be prepared to forsake all even if necessary. To the point even of having nowhere to lay our heads if that's what he calls us to do. Now some are called this way. But everybody is called as Christians to be generous with our time. Be generous with our money. To not be, make idols of material things. Jesus calls us, like the teacher of the law, out of our middle class comfort zones, perhaps, and into radical discipleship 
where we forsake all to follow him. To this man, following Jesus seemed the most exciting thing in the world. And it is. It seemed like an amazing journey to embark on a boat with Jesus. And it is. But it's not comfortable. Following Jesus is exciting, it is amazing, it is wonderful, but it is not comfortable. And once we're in the once we are in the boat, it costs us everything. Jesus is not just asking us for material things here. He is asking us for total allegiance to him as the captain of the boat that we are on. We're not told how the teacher of the law responded to what Jesus said. There is a clue in the sense that, that he was not genuine in the fact that he calls Jesus here teacher, which is not something in Matthew's gospel that anybody else calls Jesus. Any no disciple calls Jesus teacher. But we don't really know. This man, though, was amazed, no doubt, at Jesus' teaching. He was probably caught up in the fervour of the crowds and of the healings and of all those things. And in his fervour, he was quick to promise without understanding the implications of what he was saying. It is easy to follow Jesus when he is popular or it looks comfortable But Jesus doesn't hide the cost. The cost is everything. Just like the Son of Man gave everything. We must understand what Jesus expects of us as Christians. Many are quick to promise, but the promise doesn't last because the cost is not counted. It always makes me think of uh, professions of faith that many of my friends made as teenagers at Christian camp. At camp, it is the easiest place in the world to make any commitment to Jesus. And, 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 and like the man here, say, I'll, I'll do anything for you, Jesus. Because at camp, you're only with Christians. You're with Christians 24 hours a day. And it's easy to commit there. But how sad it is when so many of those commitments that were made at camp didn't last even days once many of my friends came home. And for the friends that I grew up with, almost all of them came home to families that did not support them at all as Christians, because they weren't Christians. And it was ever so hard to live in that environment. It was easy to make the commitment at camp, but ever so hard to follow that through. But even on Sunday, it can be easy to make commitments, can't it? And then Monday morning, reality arrives, and those commitments fall away. I'm not saying here that if you're not a Christian, don't bother coming to Jesus, it's too hard. That's not what this is about. This is more about come to Jesus, but come recognizing the cost of following him. Come to Jesus. Come to the King who asks for everything. Perhaps some Christians have forgotten this truth, and perhaps some of us are holding back. 
Are we giving financially as we should in the light of Jesus being our king who asks for all? Are we obeying the radical commands that he asks us in the Sermon on the Mount, for example? Are we being stewards of our time, knowing that each second is accounted for by him? It is a high and holy calling to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Even at the moment in our church, there are promises that we make. At the moment, we're electing deacons. There are opportunities of service in other areas of the church. There's the study group that is beginning, that has commitments that need to be followed through on. There are new members joining the church who have to make membership commitments with the rest of us. Each of these things come with a biblical and a constitutional uh, commitment that we need to be aware of before we follow through with it. It's no use saying, yes, I'll be a deacon and not follow through with what that entails. It's no good saying, yes, I'm really excited about the study group. And then after one page of the book, put it down and say, oh, I just don't want to do this anymore. As Christians, we've got to follow through with the commitments that we make to each other, as well as, of course, to God. But there's a danger here, as we come to this point in the passage, that we don't commit to anything at all, isn't there? We think, oh, no, this is all too hard. Not being too quick to promise is not to say we shouldn't promise anything at all. The first man wants to follow Jesus but doesn't understand the cost. But there is a second man who is a counterpoint to the first. And he has the opposite problem. If the first man is too quick to promise, the second man is too slow to follow. Look at verses 21 and 22 again. Another disciple said to him, Lord... First, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And when it says in verse 21, a a disciple, it doesn't necessarily mean one of the twelve. Rather, at this point, the disciple is a, a general follower of Jesus. There are many in the crowd that were following him all over the place. Unlike the teacher of the law, this man calls Jesus Christ Lord, a better understanding perhaps of of who he is. But this disciple has a problem. He needs to bury his father first. Now culturally at the time, burying the father was a big deal. It was the responsibility of the eldest son to, 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 to arrange the burial and the funeral of the father and arrange all of those things that go along with the death of a parent. It was a very, very important role. Uh, an example of it being so important in the Bible is if you go, uh, well, don't turn there now, but in, in Genesis, uh, Joseph, or Joseph goes to Pharaoh and asks for compassionate leave in order to bury Jacob when he dies to carry him all the way back to Canaan to bury him in his home. Joseph took that responsibility. It was a big deal for him to do that. And Pharaoh allowed him to go and they went for the time and they buried his father. Now this seems, doesn't it, a very reasonable request for the man to make. 
And so Jesus' response can seem to us at first reading very harsh indeed. Surely he could just catch up on the next boat after burying his dad. But there's more going on here, I think, than meets the eye. Burial usually was within 24 hours of death. And although the the funeral arrangements could last uh, up to a week, the arrangements would take priority over all other responsibilities. That means that if the father had only just died, this man couldn't really be on the roadside with Jesus. He'd be too busy arranging everything for his father's funeral. He'd be keeping vigil and all those kind of things. More likely, bury one's father means to fulfill one's duty to one's father, to care for him for the rest of the father's life. Quite possibly, also, it was to wait for the inheritance that was coming his way. You see, the issue here was that the man did not want to follow Jesus right away, but he wanted to wait. He wanted to wait until he's finished with his father and perhaps received his inheritance. There are two reasons for his slowness in following Jesus. The first reason was his priorities. He put his family before his saviour. This is not teaching us in this passage that we should not care for our parents when they're elderly or not care for other family members. Jesus is not promoting here some violation of the commandment to honour thy father and mother. For some of us, God has called us to follow him by caring for our family members in their older years. But sometimes there is a clash between following Jesus and another priority we may have. And sometimes family can be that choice between following Christ as you are called to or not. Sometimes our families can give us flat-out opposition. They try and make it extremely difficult for us to go to church. Maybe um, arranging Sunday dinner just as church is supposed to be on, for example. Or sometimes our families can make our lives so comfortable that to leave them for any reason at all It's so difficult that the following of Jesus just is a bit too hard. I'd rather stay with my family, thank you very much. But there may be other priorities that cause you to be too slow to follow. A hobby that gives you no time with God. A job that asks you to compromise. Children that can become idols. For this man, there was a priority that took precedence over Jesus for him. And so Jesus says, no, follow me. The second problem he had was that of procrastination. The first was priorities, the second was procrastination. He was delaying following Jesus until a better time. Now some of us, no doubt, have great intentions to deal with our procrastination, but we keep putting off dealing with it. But for this man... The excuse to put off Jesus till later was just procrastination. He's saying, I'll follow you later, Jesus, when I haven't got so much going on. 
Perhaps when I've got my inheritance, when I've got that, then, then I'll follow you then because I'll have a bit more money and I can even give more Jesus then. The problem for this man, though, was that the boat is leaving now. It's going to the other side. Many of you uh, may have heard the phrase, procrastination is the thief of time. But procrastination is also the thief of faith. If we keep putting Jesus off, before we know it, the opportunity may go either through death or through just not being called by the Spirit anymore. There are two areas where procrastination is common in this regard. There is salvation. I'll commit to following Jesus later. I'll become a Christian when I'm older. But perhaps more common to those uh, who are in church today is the, the procrastination in service. I'll begin reading my Bible next week when I've got a bit more time to get started on it. I'll serve in the church when I'm a bit older and I've got more experience. I'll deal with this sin problem when my exams are over. Just for example. And before we know it, we will have wasted our lives on things that don't really matter, but have been diversions from the enemy, and we've not given our life to what really matters. Following Jesus with all that we have. Verse 22 is not Jesus being harsh. This is Jesus being realistic. And he gives this proverbial saying. Let the the dead bury their own dead. Or let those that are spiritually dead worry about the things of this world. Let the spiritually dead be concerned about spending life putting family before everything or getting their inheritance or whatever other excuse is being made. Because the boat is leaving now. Now is the time to embark on it. I wonder, what, what, are, what are your excuses? Are you, are, are you frittering away life on temporary things? On the same things as the spiritually dead? Or are we following Jesus with with everything that we have? Now all of us have to work on these things. We all make excuses. We all procrastinate in different ways. We all have priorities that are wrong in different areas. But how about tonight? Even now so that we don't procrastinate, just consider what those things are. What is holding us back from following Christ with all of our hearts? At the risk of encouraging you to make too quick a promise, make the commitment today. This radical call that Jesus makes is not made by a king who is somewhere out there and doesn't know what it's like. We can never say to Jesus, but God, you don't know what it's like in my situation. Jesus had family that couldn't stand what he was doing and made it difficult for him. Jesus had opposition all the time. 
And Jesus had to literally carry his cross to his own death by crucifixion. The radical call to follow the king, Jesus Christ, is exemplified in the king himself. We're called to follow one who went to a cross and who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Not hastily, but counting the cost. In the very next story, the boat that they get on gets into a storm. It's not easy following Jesus. But after the cross is the crown. Jesus presents a glorious advert of his kingdom. It is wonderful. But to get to the other side means that now we give everything we have to follow him. But we give to one who has given everything to us. That paradox is is wonderful and true. That salvation is free. Jesus gave his all for you and for me. He gave his life on the cross to pay the penalty for sin that we deserve. And so he in return asks us to have faith in that sacrifice. But to follow him with everything we've got. And he is worthy of that, isn't he? Because he gave it all for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ who gave his all. And I pray that tonight, uh, as we hear this call of Jesus to follow, follow him, that we would do so not too quickly, where we don't think about what the cost is, but knowing the cost, be quick to follow. Lord, we just take a time, uh, a, a moment of quiet just in our own hearts to commit to you and to confess where we have not committed, where our priorities have not been right. We just take time now to co- confess and commit to you. And we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.